Hello, and thank you for spending your time with us today. I'm Ian Hamilton coming to you from Virtual Reality. It is March 22nd, 2022, and we're recording this live with an audience on YouTube. I'm using a Quest 2 standalone VR headset to project myself onto this simple meta avatar and join a completely virtual recording studio with my co-host, who I've never met in the physical world. Please subscribe to our channel, share our links, and support our work as we bring you the latest news and analysis, marking the growth of VR into a mainstream technology. My co-host sitting with me today, who built this studio, is David Heaney, and he's joining me from across an ocean. Heaney, what do we have for our audience today? We'll talk about evidence that more than 2,000 PlayStation VR 2 dev kits have been sent out. We'll talk about the new update to Immerse that adds pass-through portals and tracked keyboards. We'll talk about a new Quest 2 setting, which smooths out AirLink frame drops. And we'll talk about the announcement that parental controls are coming to the Quest platform. Let's just get into that first subject right there. U.S. import logs suggest that Sony has already sent more than 2,000 PlayStation VR 2 developer kits. Heaney, what is the paper trail with this particular bit of news? So this is something that was spotted by the news outlet Tweaktown. And what they spotted was that if you look at U.S. import logs, so the logs of what different boxes companies are importing into the United States, you can see that between October and January, Sony brought in five shipments that total 2,374 boxes of development kit for interactive entertainment software. And it's not unprecedented that there are dev kits out there because when Sony revealed the headset design a month ago, you'll remember, and you know, this is it here, the headset design, they actually said development kits are already in the hands of game creators. So if you sort of put two and two together and you see that for the past few months before that, they've been shipping these headsets over, you know, the PlayStation 5 has been out for two years and there's no logs that look like this. So it's not likely that this is just, they've just started to ship PlayStation 5s just as they announced this. Everything seems to line up with the fact that this is, in fact, the PlayStation VR 2 dev kits being sent out to game developers and studios to see what they can build in preparation for whenever the launch is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we dug into this pretty heavily. One of the things you proposed or talked about was, could this be a dev kit for the PlayStation 5 itself? What is the indication here? the clearest indication that these are definitely PSVR 2s or or probably PSVR 2 dev kits and not uh, PlayStation 5 dev kits. Well, as I said, the the PlayStation 5 has been out for two years now. These import logs only start showing up in October a few months ago. And it's just a few months later, Sony says, okay, development kits for PlayStation VR 2 are now in people's hands. If this was PlayStation 5, you'd expect to see these logs come in before the launch of PlayStation 5, after the launch of PlayStation 5, but it's not. It's just after, you know, it's eight months after Sony confirms that they're working on a PlayStation VR 2, and just a few months before they tell everyone that development kits are out there. So we can't say with certainty that this is PSVR 2, but it seems highly likely based on the kind of circumstances and facts that this is what we're seeing, PlayStation VR 2. Anthony mentioned the only reason to purchase a PS5 is to get a PSVR 2. There's plenty of people out there who want a great non-meta VR headset. And a lot of people are holding out hope that PSVR 2 brings a lot of really amazing things together that avoid the meta ecosystem quite a bit. 
it's going to be interesting to see how many millions they sell of this particular headset versus how big of an install base they're actually able to get for PS5. I'm curious uh, how they bundle those two things together. There were a lot of bundles the first time around, right, Heaney? Yeah, and I think the sentiment that Anthony's saying there is going to be something that people who are looking into buying a console anyway are going to be thinking about. Because say you're one of those people that every generation, you're not tied specifically to PlayStation or Xbox. You're the type of person that looks at the advantages and disadvantages of each console, each generation, and says, this is the one I'm going to pick based on these reasons. If you are one of those people, which is majority of console buyers, PlayStation 5, PlayStation 2 VR is going to be a huge factor there because The Xbox Series X, it has its exclusives, it has its advantages, but Microsoft has given no indication that it plans to release a VR headset. So you decide to buy a PS5, and that's something that even if you don't get it in the first year, even if you don't get it in the first two years, at some point down the line, you'll have that console ready there waiting to power this headset. And as you're sort of alluding to, power it with much higher fidelity games than what you would get if you decide to go with a Quest. There's two questions here. James saying this dev kit better be out there because the PSVR 2 needs a library for it. And then Aria is saying, can someone tell me what a dev kit is? And that's such a great fundamental question where what a dev kit is going to be is it's going to be close to the final product with probably a pre-production run of hardware. So it's going to be a small run of the hardware. And it's going to have most of the features there for the developer to use in actually constructing their software for a given headset. And the key thing to understand is there are going to be major, major fundamental differences in the way the VR hardware works for Generation 2 of PlayStation VR in comparison to the way Generation 1 worked. So developers who built their software for PSVR 1 are really going to need to have this in their hands, even if it's not the finished hardware, to get their software up and running on it. Heaney, do you want to run through what some of those differences are real quick? From the PlayStation VR to the PlayStation VR 2, well, the PlayStation VR 1 was essentially an experiment for Sony. It was in many ways just a beta test. It used the kind of PlayStation 4 camera that was never designed to track a VR headset, which meant that your tracking volume was only in a certain range. So if you crouched down too low or you moved too much to the sides, the headset wouldn't be tracked. The controllers were the, you know, the PlayStation Move controllers that were used as far back as the PlayStation 3 with its little PlayStation Eye. And the headset was something that we'd seen near final prototypes for in 2014. So it's coming up to, you know, eight years old. This is a headset that is designed from scratch for VR, this system. It is, it, it uses inside out tracking from the cameras on the headset. So you don't need to place down a camera bar and you can kind of move around your room freely without having to worry about going out of tracking range. The controllers are also tracked by the headset. So. Again, you don't have to worry about bringing your controllers too far out of the range. In addition to that, instead of having just buttons, the controllers now have actual thumbsticks so you can move around in virtual worlds. The headset has a much higher resolution screen and it's still OLED, so you're still going to get those rich, deep blacks and heavy contrast. And it has extra features such as the controller has the same HD haptic rumble that you get on the PlayStation 5's gamepad and even the headset has its own rumble feature so you get shot in a game and you can feel feedback there 
And further than that, Sony's gone and decided to put eye tracking in this headset. So when you're with other PlayStation VR 2 users in multiplayer, you can actually make eye contact with them and see what they're looking at. And it could also potentially be used for foveated rendering, where the area that you're looking at is rendered in a higher resolution than what you're not looking at so that the, the overall graphics can be better because instead of having to render high fidelity graphics across your entire view, it only renders it exactly where you're looking. So this really is a significant step up from the PlayStation VR 1. And Sony can't, sh- you know, on that development question, Sony can't give developers this when it launches because you want, if you're a company like Sony, to have a bunch of games ready to go when the headset's for sale. You don't want to buy this and have only a few tech demos out and have to wait around for big games. Sony wants it so that when you get this headset, there are multiple, if not dozens, of games that you will actually want to buy and play. If we are right here and there's 2,000 kits, how many dev kits do the big studios need to actually produce something of quality by the time this headset actually launches? And if Sony doesn't get the right number of products lined up for launch, do they have to launch this product in a different time frame in order to get enough devs in the door and Heaney just went to such a great extent there explaining how different some of these things are i am really excited about the haptic triggers and how those are going to change the feel of things like bow and arrows and pulling back and feeling the string in your fingers it's going to take a while for devs to really take advantage of some of those extra features Yeah, when you combine that trigger, that's one of the things I forgot to mention, that just like in the PlayStation 5 controller, the trigger can actually resist your fingers. So as you pull back, it can be impossible or difficult and you can really feel the tension. If you combine that with that HD rumble, you're going to get really, really immersive experiences like pulling back a bow or kind of grabbing different sorts of objects. So when you combine those haptics with the head haptics, in many ways, this is going to step all of VR forward in the area of haptics. So it'll be really interesting to see what developers can do with that in games because every time there is a new feature like this in VR, it always seems like what developers manage to come up with is always better and kind of more impressive than the speculated potential use cases before it's actually realized. Yeah, and Kieran Harris making the comment that Horizon is just going to be the start, basically, of the PlayStation VR exclusives. And that is going to be the first product we're going to be looking toward to see a a showpiece of what this hardware is actually capable of. Any other comments we should get into there before moving on to our next subject, Tini? Paradise Decay just kind of pointing out this fact that Sony had mentioned that a lot of their games are going to be hybrid, so that's not going to be games that are built for VR from scratch only for VR. They're going to take a strategy this generation where some of the bigger normal games that you would normally play on your TV can optionally be played in VR. And potentially even you can switch forward by putting on your headset to play one mission with VR and deciding that you're too tired or there's some people coming into the room. So you put the headset down and pick up the controller and play the next mission on the TV. And that has a really interesting potential. And it also potentially means that Sony can get out content faster than if they were just waiting for all these studios to develop from scratch for vr titles yeah i think we talked about that on a previous stream was this idea of standardizing around comfort settings so that there's vignetting system-wide and using the system that way of switching back and forth you need to have those kinds of things in place so that it feels that much more awesome to put the headset on and use it for a mission or two and then take the headset off 
and play just in a more relaxed way. But you want it to feel amazing in both conditions. And there aren't a lot of examples of that kind of VR software in the market right now, I don't think. All right, moving on to our next subject, Immersed. Work from Anywhere Solution Immersed is rounding out its feature set with customizable pass-through portals and support for tracked keyboards on MetaQuest 2. I had Renji Bajoy, the co-founder of Immersed, here in our studio to break that news and show off those features. These are incredible add-ons to the work-from-home solution. And as it was explained to me, with this particular pass-through solution, you can select from a variety of predefined shapes, like a circle or a sphere or a window to make a doorway. And you can put these portals around you in various places, and these shapes can become portals to the real world. So right now, on my desk here, I have a cup of coffee that is completely invisible to me right now. And I would like to reach forward and drink from it occasionally. And that's kind of example that is shown in a lot of the videos for Immersed. Being able to reach forward, grab your cup of coffee, put it back down, get your mouse, get your keyboard, even see someone walking by your doorway. All of those things were shown as being possible with these pass-through portals from Immersed. And then, of course, the track keyboard, which is the Apple Magic Keyboard and the K830 Logitech, I think. Having all of those features, are we ready? Is now the line where it really makes sense to do eight hours of work in VR, Heaney? Or what else is needed before that's really possible? So I don't think we're at eight hours yet, but I also don't think that there's going to be some line where it gets to the point that VR work is practical. I think it'll be a slow progression where over time you get these little features and improvements added. And what really excites me about this update is that tracked keyboard, because it's something that's been available in the Quest home screen to use in the browser, for example, for quite a while. But it's something that was only released for developers last month, I think, as an SDK. So it's great to see that finally start to come out. Because one of the sort of most frustrating barriers to do useful work in VR so far has been that lack of text input. The fact that you either have to use these kind of awful floating keyboards that are slow and imprecise or fumble around in the dark for your own keyboard. And for anyone that's not familiar with what we mean here, this new feature just means that for those two keyboards Ian mentioned, you can see them as 3D models in VR and you put your hands over them and type directly on them just as if they were virtual objects, but it's perfect haptics because they're actually a real object on your table and it's just connected to your headset via Bluetooth, just the same way you would have a keyboard connected to your iPad via Bluetooth or something like that. And that's one of those big barriers. But we still need the headsets to be a lot more comfortable, in my opinion, to make this something practical. The Quest 2 is still a half a kilogram brick on your face. Project Cambria, which is slated to come out later this year as Meta's high-end headset, certainly looks like it's going to be a lot more comfortable. But I'm still skeptical as to whether we're at the EAR point. But yeah, as you mm. say, then you come on to the third factor, which is you need to be able to quickly access objects in your real room. I think a lot of that's going to be solved by high quality color pass through rather than the kind of low resolution black and white we have on Quest today. But it's going to be when all those factors come together, a comfortable headset that lets you easily use your mouse and keyboard that lets you easily reach out to your real world. And fourth factor is what Immersed has already solved in software, which is, and also let you collaborate with your coworkers and see their monitor as well. 
which is why I've always really been a fan of Immersed. It's a very impressive app and arguably the most practical if you want to do serious remote work. And yeah, these features are just incredible to see. Yeah, there's a category of apps that includes Immersed, Spatial, and Big Screen that provide fundamental features that we would expect in the future. But uh, Workrooms from Meta seems to be competing with them head on. And I remember there was, I can't even think of what it was called right now, but if you go back in three or four years, as soon as Microsoft started showing that they were going to offer a desktop solution in VR of basically ac- accessing something like virtual desktop, uh, there was a startup that just shut down almost overnight as soon as it became clear that Microsoft was going to kind of provide that solution for their users. And I really wonder about the future of immersed and spatial and big screen and how those futures change over time based on the fact that Meta is so seriously moving into the same space and doing some of the same things. Any comments there that we should come re- respond to, Heaney? Anakazi is just pointing out that Immersed has a recurring subscription and they're not a fan of paying things forever. I have to look at this from the fact that this is an ongoing development team that is going to constantly add features like this that fundamentally change the experience. This is going to be such a fast-moving area that I don't think it's financially practical to just pay a one-off fee for something like this. This isn't a single-player game that is just shipped and then you play it forever. This is an evolving product. You've pointed out that Workrooms obviously heavily competes with something like this, and that's where Immersed might be seeing some pressure because Workrooms is free, while this is a relatively expensive subscription. But where I think Workrooms shines is as a meeting tool, but Immersed goes much further when it comes to an actual remote work tool because Immersed lets you surround yourself with these virtual windows, as you can see in this screenshot, and really multitask, whereas Workrooms is a kind of one monitor at a time solution you know maybe you know they add multiple monitors or something like that but it's still not the same as having your monitor your your kind of windows around you because that is the ideal virtual workspace where the concept of a monitor disappears because the monitor is only needed when you're using a physical screen when you have a virtual space like this when windows just become objects in 3d space a monitor is not needed anymore. You just want to have one app here, uh, another app here, a chat window up here, and let your coworkers teleport in and out and share one window over to them and let them make some changes to it and bring it back to you. And obviously that idea isn't realized yet. You can't really have them interact with your desktop or one specific window. But when that happens, I think you start to see these tools become unbelievably useful and replace a lot of what the current advantage of a physical office over remote work is because you can have these more personal off-the-cuff experiences than the current kind of remote work paradigm we have today. Immersed talked about a couple different things that they've got going on. They have these public cafes where you can go in and work alongside someone, but I think your screens are by default not shareable in those spaces. You have to go and create a shared private instance in order for any of that shared display functionality to even turn on. So you can kind of get the sense of not being alone while being alone, so to speak. I'm seeing Guy Godin's comment here. That's the creator of Virtual Desktop here in our comments saying that, quote, getting in workrooms itself is such a complicated mess that I think it's valuable for third-party apps to compete, in my opinion. And that's a, a wonderful comment about the situation with Meta's Workrooms app or Facebook Workrooms, which... Even the naming convention here points out the exact issue there where 
they rolled that product out with a weird account signup flow that almost everyone going to use workrooms has come up against. And we are still waiting for Meta to announce in detail how those account login changes will actually roll out. What does a future where you don't need a Facebook account to log into a Quest actually look like? We don't know. They haven't told us or really explained that in detail yet. Yeah, I think Workrooms is aiming for something very specific, which is meeting with a predefined team. So yes, obviously, it's a very high friction experience and that you've got that weird desktop account flow. But once you have that set up, the idea is you just hop into the same team. But immersed is something more general, where as well as solo, solo co-working, as you say, there is this sort of like public co-working in the same sense that you might go to a library or a cafe in the real world. And over time, as your headsets are more comfortable and immersive, you're going to see that become something that is more practical and more appealing. But it's difficult to say whether Meta plans to use Workrooms as its general meeting software. I think they'll probably release something more low friction when it comes to just meeting with friends and using a desktop rather than meeting within a business that Workrooms is focused around. Rudy's comment here talking about using a form monitor setup and they'd be interested in using such a setup in VR. Great comment there because it goes straight to the pricing model that Immersed is using right now for their app where you can go and try Immersed right now and it includes a two monitor setup. So if you've got like a laptop, you can get your laptop screen plus one more and just use that for free. And then if you like it, you can move up to their paid tier service which is fairly pricey for a lot of the uses out there. But if you're going to work that substantially in VR, it may work out for a lot of people. But that priced uh, subscription tier takes you up to five monitors. And that's right over what Rudy in the comments is saying that they sort of use as their traditional setup. Onakazi saying they wouldn't want to pay the subscription because they don't care about the social aspect. You don't work remote in a team. I would recommend you try the app called vSpatial, not spatial, but vSpatial, because it's a kind of similar concept to Immersed, but designed for one person and it doesn't have a subscription. Though, of course, you're not going to get as quickly the features like the track keyboard and the features like the pass-through portals, because those are the kind of features you get from a dev team that does have this recurring revenue that can afford to. But hopefully as the VR and AR market expands, we're going to get free and low-cost apps that are able to do all this. It's just that it's a small market right now, so developers do have to charge more than in a huge market like tablets or smartphones. James making the comment that it shouldn't be only screens, but an entire pipeline to create and view all kinds of content. And that's, I think, where we're going to Meta's branding, where they're using the term horizon to refer to a lot of their social efforts in VR. And of that word that they're using and the multiple products that it's attached to indicate that they do have a vision of an entire pipeline of creating content from the ground up and then having some places where you come off with a team you know and work in VR or then go out into other spaces where you meet strangers. Well, I think that's what Spatial does very well because Spatial has that already. You can load in instead of sh sharing a desktop, which I don't even think Spatial does unless I've forgotten, but Spatial lets you send 3D objects, images, and videos directly into the VR space. So you pull an image out that you have and it's, you know, it's an image in your hand. You pull a video out and pin it somewhere and even a 3D object that you have, you can just bring it into that space and everyone around you can see it. And yeah, I, I do agree with you, James O'Loughlin. That is something that needs to be a fundamental part of these remote work solutions. It can't just be 
sharing a monitor because that's just copying the concept of a real office. But in VR, we have the ability to make digital files float in the air to bring 3D objects out of a little preview on a rectangle in front of you and in the real space. So the, the ideal remote work solution is going to have all of these features together and let you kind of seamlessly do them across a network, regardless of where any of your coworkers are. You ready for the next subject, Tini? Yep. Frame rate insurance. Fakes a Quest 2 AirLink dropped frames to reduce judder on imperfect connections. Heaney, you are sort of the expert on various methods to get up to frame rate on various systems. Explain to us in, you know, like I'm five, how does this one differ from the previous ones? Expert is a strong word there. I wouldn't agree with that, but I will explain <laughs> the, the context here. So if anyone's not familiar with AirLink, it is a feature of Quest that lets it act as a wireless PC VR headset. So instead of plugging in, you know, an index or a HTC Vive, you just through your home Wi-Fi network can use your Quest to do that. And this is something that has been available for years through third-party software, such as Guy Godin in our comments, virtual desktop. A lot of people still prefer virtual desktop because it, you know, has extra features and for some people works better. But Airlink this week has released a new experimental feature called frame rate insurance and you have to manually enable it and go to our article to find out how to do that but here's what it does say your wi-fi network is congested by other devices or there's kind of some sort of signal issue or the, the network is imperfect or your router is very far away and so every so often a frame sent from your pc doesn't make it to the headset on time it either gets deprioritized by the router because other devices are more important to the router at the time or it just arrives late for a host of other network reasons. Frame rate insurance will fake that frame instead of just repeating the last frame. Because if you re if you just repeat the last frame, even though your head has moved, then you're going to see full screen judder because you're going to see the position that your head was in in the previous frame rather than where you've moved to. And not just your head movement, there's also objects in the frame. So if a, you know if a, something's moving from left to right, it will seem to have stopped moving if you just repeat the last frame. Frame rate insurance looks at the motion of the past frames and extrapolates it on one frame so that you get a synthetic frame that is preferable to judder. It's not perfect. Motion extrapolation is flawed. You know, it's just taking what happened in the last few frames and saying what will probably happen in the next based on the movement. But the idea is that if you're only using it every so often and only for one frame at a time, it's not going to be noticeable enough to be a major problem. And again, the idea is that it's preferable to judder. So I've tried it, you know, I, and a, a few people have tried this since, and it does work. If you, the, the kind of judder, the little quick hitch that you would normally see from a frame drop before is gone. And it seems as if it's just a smooth experience. The caveat here is that this is not going to fix a bad Wi-Fi network if it's so bad that you're dropping multiple frames in a row. If your router is, you know, 10 years old and came for free with your internet service provider and it's in three rooms down the hall, Airlink is, uh, is still going to suck just as virtual desktop will. There's no magic way to solve a very bad Wi-Fi network. But when there's only intermittent issues, this is the kind of thing that can help. 
Gigoden, virtual desktops developer, in our comments saying, quote, from experience, usually you don't miss a frame or two. It's typically five to ten in a row. So I'm not sure if AFI is able to extrapolate five to ten frames. We'll have to see. Madam noted that too, that if you if you have five to ten in a row, it's going to be useless because they actually say they will just stop doing it because the more the longer it's been since you've had a real frame the more that the extrapolation is going to look wrong because it's almost just going to be like it's stretching out the motion in the direction that you're moving or in the direction that stuff was moving i haven't logged this in detail to say whether it is usually five or ten in a row but all i can say is that between having frame rate insurance off and frame rate insurance on i don't notice those hitches anymore and it doesn't seem to be noticeable so it seems to work. I know people in our comments are saying it seems to work. So, you know, obviously Guy's the expert here, but it seems to work. Popsar asks, can we increase the frame rate artificially? And so that's actually something that is already possible with both Airlink and Virtual Desktop, and they have their own slightly different systems for that. So with Airlink, you have a, what's called asynchronous space warp. And with Virtual Desktop, you have what's called synchronous space warp. Both of these technologies let you cut the application's real frame rate in half. So your PC only has to work half as hard to, to the core rendering. And then they extrapolate every other frame. So you have real frame, fake frame, real frame, fake frame. The difference is that Airlink does it on your computer, whereas Virtual Desktop does it on your Quest. So we wrote an article about this when Virtual Desktop released their feature. And it actually, you know, to my eye, Virtual Desktop's extrapolation there is better. Both of these texts do the same thing. They let you run an app at half the frame rate so you can boost the graphics much higher or use a weaker PC. But Virtual Desktop's approach of doing it on the headset just seems to work out better, which is surprising because the PC actually has more information from the game, including the depth buffer. It knows the actual depth of the frame. So Guy Godin has done an amazing job there at that. But, you know, at current... Airlink now has this extra feature, which is a separate thing, uh, frame rate insurance, which virtual desktop doesn't currently have. So, you know, whether you're going to prefer Airlink or virtual desktop is going to depend on whether your issue is your PC or your Wi-Fi network. Uh, but for most people, it still seems that virtual desktop works better for them overall. You know, I try to understand how this technology will be used a couple years from now. I go off on a lot of tangents here to try to understand that on pretty fundamental levels. It's rough to see this connect between what VR is capable today and where it needs to be to unlock some of those things down the line. Uh, like in 11 VR, it's an incredible simulation for most people. And if you want to go play table tennis and you don't have access to a physical table, there's no better way than actually having a $300 headset at home and being able to play. But there are differences between the outside-in tracking system that you might get out of 11 in Steam VR and what you get out of the inside-out tracking system. And then at the end of the day, how quickly all of these systems are able to predict what your next movement is in a sport where your movements have to be so reaction-fast can have significant impacts on your score at the end of the day if you're trying to compete at the very highest levels. So those are the things to consider about these systems. If you want to go train in VR, which headset do you want to get? And are these headsets going to get better so that you don't need an outside-in tracking system over time? 
I think we no longer need an outside-in tracking system when it comes to something like 11. I think we're already at that point. If you look at the league tables for 11, the best players are playing on Quest 2. But you wouldn't want to play on Airlink or Virtual Desktop. You don't want to add the latency that's involved in compressing and decompressing an image. You want to play 11 natively on the Quest 2 because on Quest 2, you can play at 120 hertz. So if you have an index and you're at 144 hertz, you're going to be at a better experience there. But I don't think you're going to see much difference in performance in something like 11 between an index at 120 hertz and a Quest 2 and 120 hertz. And mm. arguably because of some of the things like positional time warp, you may even see slightly lower latency on Quest 2. The big impact there in future is going to be what happens when we get headsets that go dramatically into higher refresh rates like 244 hertz or even 500 hertz. Will we get to a point where we get below human reaction time or are we already there yet? That's something we can only really find out in future when we get those better headsets. Mm. Yeah, I can't wait to answer that question. And Heaney is going to the core of what I'm trying to understand here and how these technologies relate to those higher refresh rates is going to be something we're going to come back to. Any other comments there we should respond to before moving on to our big discussion topic here? James O'Loughlin is talking about the YGIG2 standard. So that would be a system that uses a more expensive transmitter, a dedicated transmitter, rather than using standard Wi-Fi. YGIG is like a much higher bandwidth version of Wi-Fi that uses the 60 gigahertz spectrum. But the trade-off there is the transmitter is going to be bigger, it's going to be more expensive, and it's going to have to be in your room with a line of sight to your headset. So mounted up on your wall or up on a shelf. It's not something that you can just do on your standard Wi-Fi network. But hopefully we do see that as a thing for standalone headsets, because if you do want to get the latency that you need to play something like table tennis, it's not going to happen with compressed video. It has to be uncompressed or with a very fast, low level of compression. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our last subject here. Parents will soon have increased supervision over teenagers using Quest devices. There will be linked teen accounts, and content restrictions tools coming soon from Meta. Can you break down how this layer of supervision works on Meta headsets? Yeah, so you can already make an unlock pattern for your Quest. Today, that's basically the only parental control is that if you're a parent, you can set it up so that the kid would have to swipe a pattern. And if you don't tell them that pattern, every time they want to play VR, you could put on the headset, swipe that pattern, and make that the buyer. That's not really practical though. So Meta has announced some real parental control features. From April, they're going to have an unlock code that can be used for specific apps. So having them come in and use the headset for apps that you've allowed them to use and installed, but you can block them from things like VR chat or Rec Room because one of the things we always hear is that Rec Room is always telling parents, please don't put your kids in this headset into the public spaces. And some parents may give the excuse of, oh, I just left the headset down and I came back in the room and the kid was using it. Well, now from April, you'll be able to put an unlock pattern on. So the kid tries to open up Rec Room and they can't unless they know that pattern. From May, then there'll be much more practical controls in that parents will be able to block apps based on their age rating. So, you know, all games have a age rating from, in some countries, it's Peggy. In other countries, it's, uh, what is it? I can't even remember the American Standards Agency for it. But yeah, ESRB. all of these apps already have, ESRB, yeah, all of these apps already have this age rating. 
and you'll be able to do that automatically. They also will have a parent dashboard where parents will be able to see things like the amount of time the kids spent in each app and do a much more specific monitoring. Now, I noticed in Meta's announcement for this, their current recommendation is please use the casting feature when your child is using virtual reality. And that would be kind of my recommendation right now as well. You don't want to put, you know, if you're a parent, usually you're going to at least every so often look over your kid's shoulder, kind of you want to have one eye on maybe what kind of thing they're doing. Even if you don't want to read exactly what they're doing, you want to have a rough eye on what your kid's doing on their iPad, on their laptop, on their computer. Use the casting feature on Quest, cast to the TV so you can at least have one eye on what they're doing and they're not going to be doing something inappropriate. That's kind of my go-to rule as well. I would love to see that casting feature being tied entirely to usage of, of a teen in VR entirely. So basically you can't use the headset unless it's cast to a nearby device. Seems like a reasonable security feature to have on headsets. If you want to really guide someone else, make that a thing you could turn on as a guardrail. I would love to see that. We have a donation here from Bushin Ryukat. Sorry if I'm butchering your username there. And they're asking, uh, VR Talk, can you help? Is there a VR headset you can connect to a 4K Blu-ray player? I want to use a cinema mode viewer for my Xbox One X. That's a great question. And it's something that was a speculated use case for VR before these headsets come out. The idea that you could plug in, you know, any kind of HDMI device and view it virtually in front of you. As far as I'm aware, there's nothing that lets you do that yet. There is an Xbox app on PC VR that you can stream your Xbox to your headset virtually. So if you installed the Oculus PC software, connected your Quest or your Rift or whatever headset to your PC, you could then stream it across. I'm not sure if that supports the copyright protection that's built into Blu-rays, though. You would have to check that. There are some headsets you can get from the likes of AliExpress or some Kickstarters that are basically dumb headsets that do exactly that. You can only plug in HDMI devices and see them on a floating screen in front of you, and it doesn't even move with your head. It's just locked. But those aren't going to be a great experience for anything else. So if that's only what you want to do, kind of Google Immersive Viewer HDMI, and you'll probably get something along those lines. But that's going to cost you a lot of money for a device that only does that. So it's a very niche use case. And to be clear with Wabo's comment here, what I'm saying is if I had the option on my headset to let other people use it, but only with casting enabled, I would activate that option. I'm not saying everyone, that needs to be the only way it works, but almost 95% of the situations where I handed my headset to someone else, I want casting on for that to be an experience that I can kind of guide and make sure the person is safe. Yeah, yeah, Wobble pointing out, you know, that not everyone has a casting device. Andrew King pointing out you can cast to a browser or a phone. That is correct. You know, oculus.com slash casting from any laptop or tablet or whatever. You can very easily cast there as long as you log in to the account. You can cast to the phone. I would love to see support for AirPlay because that's something that, you know, people will have in many near TVs if they don't have Chromecast, which is the current technology it uses. And then the other casting technology is Miracast. So hopefully we see Meta over time 
try to support all of the possible casting technologies. Though I think the industry is actually finally moving towards a standard on casting. This is obviously a kind of side rant here that for years, in general, when you want to cast content from your phone to your TV or from any device to another device, there's been those three standards, AirPlay, Google Cast, and Miracast. But with Matter, which is the M-A-T-T-E-R, the upcoming smart home standard that it looks like a lot of these big companies are going to support, I think they are putting casting into that spec. So there is a possible optimistic future a few years down the line here that casting is a universal thing. So whatever screen you have, you'll be able to cast. And I really hope that happens in time for these devices being popular enough to be used by a lot of children in supervision of their parents. So there was one big hole in this news that I had to reach out to Meta for clarification on. And I asked them basically if they could explain how the Facebook account login requirement is going to relate to these these tools. And the comment from them was, quote, yes, a Facebook account will be required for both parents and teens at this time. While incorporating external feedback, we've been working to support VR parental supervision tools for users with Facebook login while also preparing for parental supervision tools to support the new account login options for Quest devices mentioned at Connect last year. So again, they're making very clear that right now you've got to have Facebook accounts for both the teen and the adult, and that's going to change as soon as they've got their new account system login plan for the next decade and a half in place and ready to run. And I think these indications are kind of hinting that it's going to be pretty soon that we're going to get all those details. I actually took the opposite away from that. The fact that they are rolling this out now and it still is a Facebook thing. You still need a Facebook account to use the Quest 2. You still need to link a Facebook account from a child to a Facebook account with a parent for this. To me, the fact that this is announced for April and then May and there is no mention of any other account system, it still is announced as a Facebook account system extension to me indicates that that's actually a little further away than we've thought because Hmm. it it certainly did sound like it connect that it was just around the corner that any sort of month now that facebook requirement was being dropped but we haven't heard anything substantial since then it seems to be a bit of radio silence so to me it does sound like that is further away than just around the corner Mm. Interesting. I guess we'll see. Maybe the actual rollout of the new features will still take a while, but I do think it's been long enough that they really need to explain themselves again, or at least give us a very firm understanding of the Quest 1's end of life and how that's going to look. You know, there's things like the rebuying system that you suggested that I'd like to see out of Meta, where they should buy back old hardware to get people up to the newest hardware. It would be surprising to me to see that wait till the end of the year to get any kind of movement from them uh, on the quest line. But maybe you're right. Maybe it's gonna, still going to take a while. I guess it just depends on how much it affects seals. If they're, you know, if they're seeing seals slow down because of the Facebook requirement, then they're going to prioritize it. If they're seeing quests continue to fly off the shelves, I don't see why they wouldn't take their time. If it's not something that is at the top of their engineering priorities. I do think that perhaps this was prioritized more because in recent months, 
you're with some articles about issues with kids in virtual reality with, you know, going on certain platforms like VR chat and having kind of inappropriate experiences. There was a kind of clamor from some of the tech media about why don't these VR headsets have parental supervision? And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. It's a completely valid thing to point out, but it looks like in recent years, Meta is becoming a company that responds more in the short term to media concern than it was in the past where it might have said, you know, we don't change our product priorities around media clamors. Whereas these days, it certainly looks like they do, especially if you look at a, just a month back when they added that safe bubble to Horizon. That was just a few weeks after there were all those articles about the issues around that. I like Bluebell's comment saying a child should not have a Facebook account. And then Setsun's replying, many adults shouldn't have a Facebook account. I like that. <laughs> And then Andrew King asking, any predictions on when we will get another peak at Cambria? What are your thoughts there, Heaney? That relates to our previous comments. When do you think we're going to get, when is it going to be on sale and when are we, we going to get details on it? It's a good question. We haven't heard anything. There's no indication. If I had to guess, I'd say the fact that we're still this far and didn't hear anything at GDC or at CES means that it's not just around the corner again. Obviously, James O'Loughlin's pointing out that F8 could be it, you know, that which is Facebook hosts F8 every May and they talk about things, but it looks like Connect is now become their VR AR conference, whereas F8 usually seems to be about Instagram and WhatsApp and those sort of things. So I guess if it's not in May in F8, then we may be waiting until Connect in September or October. Mm hmm. Uh, I like the May timeline. That makes a lot of sense to me to try to get that out. Yeah. Do you like it because you want it sooner or do you like it because you really think it's going to happen? Uh, that's a good question. I, I'm going to go out and say that it would make sense to me to launch new hardware early in the year this year and then do big software updates and pricing and bundling out near the end of the year. So get out here early in the year with new hardware. It's been a long time since they've actually shipped proper new VR hardware. So the timing, I think, lines up a little bit more with them trying to get it out earlier in the year rather than waiting. And given that we know that there's some similarity in the platforms, uh, it would be easy for me to imagine them kind of like picking a minimum viable product to ship Cambry out with and then really gating a bunch of new features for six months down the line. And that could line up with Connect in a really a smart way. I was just going to respond, by the way, to the thing of kids shouldn't have a Facebook account. Just to be crystal clear here, when we say kids, we're talking about 13 to 18. Meta still says that the Quest 2 should not be used by people younger than 13. Facebook is a service that you are not allowed to or technically supposed to use until you're 13. And there is some research that children's eyes are not fully developed enough to use the current kind of VR display systems for, for extended periods of time until they're around 12. So that lines up pretty well in that, you know, their interpupillary distance, their convergence, all of these things are still actually developing until then. So yeah, don't put kids younger than 13 into a quest for extended period of times anyway. Mm -hmm. And James O'Laughlin mentioning Quest 1 came out in 2019 and it's already end of life. Yeah. What was the timeline they actually said for how you're going to retain access to your content after this date uh, was going to be explained to us by 2023, I think it was? I think the point was that if you bought a Quest 1 and used an Oculus account, you had to have a Facebook account by 2023. 
But given that they've now come out and said, well, we're actually going to drop that requirement, <laughs> we have to find out whether that's a thing. But it was never about that your device would become useless. It was just about that you would then have to have a Facebook account to keep using it in the sense of keep downloading games and updates and accessing the kind of online services by that date. But it certainly sounds like they've 180 on that. James mentioning I'm spoiled by the long life of Apple products. And that goes straight to the heart of your editorial, Heaney, where Facebook has a history here of leaving customers in the dust, of of leaving dead platforms left and right. I've got the Facebook Ray-Ban Stories sunglasses right now, and I'm taking it out into the world, and I'm reluctantly saying, hey, Facebook, to these glasses, when I would be more comfortable saying, hey, Meta, at the end of the day. And it's ridiculous in some respects that they've got a product on the market that was shipped out, what is it, months before a complete rebranding of the top-down. And that's just the latest example of platforms that they've kind of moved on from almost as quickly as they're out the door. And there's a real question of how they're going to handle that going forward. Yeah, so I definitely agree with you that Meta leaves its customers behind. It releases hardware and very quickly moves on from it. And that is why I wrote that editorial calling for a trade-in program so that you can trade in your headset for a substantial discount for the for the new headset. But what I would note here is that we're talking about very different devices here when you say Apple's long life of products. Smartphones are a very mature industry that Apple has been shipping for almost two decades now. The first iPhone and the first iPad did not have a long life. Those things were heavily outdated within a few years, and they essentially became paperweights that were unusable for the vast majority of apps within a couple of years. I remember taking out the first iPad out into the summer heat and then overheating after five minutes and getting that, you know, your your device is too hot. And that's exactly the situation we're at with VR headsets today, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah. The, The Quest one is analogous to that iPad one in the support sense in that they both shipped with very weak processors relative to what came next. The jump between the iPad 1 and the iPad 2 in terms of performance was enormous, just as the jump between the Quest 1 and the Quest 2 was relatively enormous. It's unfortunate that the Quest 1 users are left behind. Meta does need to do a trade-in program, but I don't think we can blame them for not supporting a five-year-old processor indefinitely. That's just the reality of a first-generation product. If you're an early adopter, it, it, then you're going to have these issues. And that's why a lot of people who have been around in tech for a long time always say, wait for the second or third revision of a shiny new product before jumping in. And that's what some people are saying about the Steam Deck right now. I don't know if they're right, but let's see if that effect happens with the Steam Deck as well. Bicycle asking the question, didn't Ray-Ban Stories just get a new update? Boz was talking about it in one of its Instagram stories. Yes. So... There is an update coming for the Ray-Ban Stories glasses in April that will extend their recording time from 30 seconds to 60 seconds. And so you can now record a a minute-long video with the glasses. And (laughs) what we were just saying, I've had the Ray-Ban glasses overheat on me multiple times for recording multiple videos back-to-back-to-back. And again, it's yeah first-generation stuff that just gets outdated really as quickly as they're out the door. Just to be clear, that's a software update, not a new version of the hardware. That is a software update. I'm hoping that kind of addresses some of the overheating problem that I've noticed too. If they can really get it out to a minute, maybe they've solved that from a software perspective, some of the problems I've had there. You know, I I noticed in Andrew Bosworth, Meta CTO's recent Ask Me Anything session that he actually said that 
when it comes to the prospect of AR glasses in the future, the thermals, the heat is actually harder than any of the other problems, including having a big enough battery, including having enough processing power in those tiny little glasses. The real problem and the real difficulty of shipping any glasses product is the heat because you have a tiny surface area, you know, these little stems or the kind of uh, ridge or frame of the glasses to dissipate that heat. And your only real place you can push that heat is either outwards, which is fine, but there's not much surface area to do it, or inwards at the user's face, which is obviously just an awful experience. You do not want glasses that are, you know, heating up your face. That's just not good. Unless you're sitting on the beach in VR, right? And then you do kind of want that heat for immersion. That's an interesting idea that you could actually generate heat on purpose. Valve engineer talked once about having an HDR display. And they were testing out and they could feel the heat beaming down on them. Uh, and it was an interesting little immersion. It'll be interesting to see how PlayStation VR 2 handles that. It's the first headset, at least first consumer headset product that will have HDR displays. And, you know, again, if anyone's not familiar with what we're talking about here, it's, it's high dynamic range where there's a much wider range of brightness that those displays can output than a, than a SDR display like most of the displays today. If you get a HDR monitor, you'll notice that in many cases there's a huge, huge heatsink on the back, or in some cases even a cooling fan on the back to keep it cool. In televisions, it's not such a huge issue because you know if you've got 55 or 65 inches, that's enough surface area to dissipate. But it's gonna be a struggle to see how VR headsets can do those sort of displays without causing a lot of heat but then again the playstation vr2 is big enough that it can have a kind of cooling system there and sony did talk a little bit about their cooling system in their recent blog post when they announced the design yeah i want liquid cooling right i want the rims of my glasses to have liquid cooling so i'm pumping out the water right through the rims of my glasses and i think that's the solution you think that'll work any i think it would be a remarkable engineering achievement to do liquid (laughs) cooling in that space but i would love to see it happen i just I'm probably going to need advances in material science. I think people underestimate how often the advances we see in mobile devices aren't just coming from better chips and better displays. A lot of it is materials that are fundamental chemistry, material science that it improves every couple of years. Mm, yeah, Seagraph is one of the best conferences to see some of those things. If you ever get a chance to actually go to a Seagraph, you can see some of those fundamental weird research projects where like you've got a squishy object you can hold and they're pumping water through it to provide additional pressure. And the types of products that you can have with that kind of system is fundamentally different than anything that's just a, a slightly thinner version of the things we're currently using. And over over the length of time, we're going to have some of those things like Heaney, like I want real weather in my living room when I'm experiencing VR for a serious length of time. And when the cold wind blows on a mountaintop, you want to feel the actual wind hit your arms. And we're going to need a fundamentally different devices to provide us those types of things down the line. Any so final fun. comments we should get to before we wrap this up? Did you ever get, what is it called? There was a fan, a VR fan that you could plug in and a couple of games supported it back in the day that you plugged in by USB and it would blow the wind at the same time. I can't remember what it was called, but it was pretty cool. What was the name of the standard, the Matter standard? I'd be curious yeah. if the Matter standard helps unlock some of those environmental use cases over time, right? Where you can really have an environment around you that's maybe powered by that. 
I certainly hope so. Home automation is something I've done a little bit as a hobbyist project, but the problem is that you are kind of having to deal with all these different standards and you end up having to kind of write your own interlink between them. And obviously, you know, there are some early attempts at globalizing this like Samsung smart things, but matter really is the first time that I'm optimistic about the industry coming together and building something that's truly interoperable, which is, you know, something we've talked about a lot in the VR AR space as well, because at the start of a new kind of technology space, you want innovation, but as it becomes more clear what these technologies look like and how they work in people's lives, you need these different products to work together because people aren't going to only be buying something from one brand. Mm. And I see uh, at least one comment from Beeman asking whether the PSVR 2 will have an, a wireless option. The PSVR 2, as it's been announced, is a strictly wired device, and we have every expectation that you should only buy the PSVR 2 if you're expecting to use it in the wired way that they're going to ship it with. So it's going to plug in via USB-C directly to the front of the PS5. And that is the way we have every expectation that this is going to operate. Now, a couple of years down the line, might power and processing somehow get ported? I don't know. It's too far away for us to offer any kind of guidance on whether a wireless option is going to be doable here or whether they're just going to move on to a fully standalone device. Right, Heaney? Yeah, and one of the things we'd really hoped for before we saw this headset design revealed a month ago was that maybe the cable end on the headset would be detachable so that that would open up the possibility, at least, for a wireless adapter down the line. Unfortunately, though, the picture pretty clearly shows that this is a non-detachable cable. This is hardwired into the headset, so that essentially kills any prospect of a wireless adapter unless you were going to wrap a five meter cable around your body and then put it into the headset but that's clearly not going to happen so if you if wireless is something you absolutely want you're going to need to wait for a psvr2 pro or a psvr2 slim or some future product that we know nothing about and may never even happen or you're going to have to go with a pc vr system because unfortunately sony for this generation seems to be sticking with the wire so our expectation is that this is going to be wired and then I think Sony is going to work on trying to match what Quest is, a standalone system. And any kind of a middle ground in there between those two is complete conjecture at this point. Sony is going to want to be battling meta on its turf with standalone it's hard to imagine the interim device that's wireless they're probably going to need to focus their resources on moving to standalone after this isn't that likely you would certainly hope so but it depends on whether sony sees vr as a separate business or as a value add to the playstation 5 if it's a value add to the playstation 5 then i think we're going to see a wireless headset down the line eventually but if it's something that they want to have broader ambitions for then a standalone seems like something that's viable. One thing I would say about the wire and the PSVR 2 that I keep meaning to say every week but always forget to say is that it's actually not as bad as the PlayStation VR 1 because with the PlayStation VR 1, the wire had to be in front of you because the PlayStation camera that was in front of you is how you were tracked. So you couldn't turn around completely and have your controller still tracked properly. With this, because there's inside-out tracking, you can actually face away from your TV so the wire is coming out from behind your head into that single USB port 
and you're tracking in the opposite direction, not only does that mean that you're far less likely to punch your TV, which is great, no one wants to punch their expensive TV, but it means that you're not going to be tripping over or kind of putting your hand over the wire. As long as you keep facing the 180 degrees away from your TV, you can have an experience that will feel like a middle ground between wireless because anyone that uses a PC VR wired headset with inside out tracking or base stations will know that facing away is a much less cumbersome wire experience than facing towards where the wire is coming from. Nathan, last comments you want to make there, Heaney? Daniel Kaz asked an interesting question. Will this be the last wired mass consumer headset? Mm. Uh, I think it's extremely likely that the answer is yes. Mm. Uh, at least the only one that is wired only. Maybe we'll see ones in future that are optional wired, but I think this will be the last one that is hardwired that is an actual mass market product. That's a brilliant question because we see the potential in Quest of how big a market can be when you move fully standalone. But we spent a lot of the earlier part of this podcast talking about some of the frame rate mitigation techniques they've got to make sure content runs really smoothly in all possible conditions on that standalone hardware. And it's just what we've got in Quest 2 and potentially Quest 3 is zeroing in on the lowest possible price you can hit for a mass market consumer VR headset. And people may want something that is the highest resolution possible or the lightest weight possible or has great uh, body tracking. There are other things that a wired system might be able to do nearer term than packing it all into a standalone device. I don't think it has to be a dichotomy between wired or standalone. There is a middle ground of a headset that is not standalone, but is wireless, that has a very low power chip on that all that chip does is decode the wireless signal and handle bringing that signal onto your display. That's the kind of headset I think we're going to see replace wired headsets. I don't think it's going to go mm-hmm. from only wired to straight standalone. I will point out Wabo is bringing the kind of alternate viewpoint that says Tether VR will never die. Never is a very strong word to use there. I think if you'd asked a lot of people in the 90s, will you always have a gamepad that connects via a wire to your console? They all would have said, of course, you know, a lot of hardcore gamers would say, of yeah. course. But you pick up an Xbox. is too high for the button presses. Yeah, there's plenty of people who would have argued that exact same thing about exactly. those. If you use three generations of Mad Cat's controllers with wireless connections to your consoles, you would have been in the camp of like, this will never be good enough, right? And then the technology got good enough. Yeah, and not only did it get good enough, but now the idea that you would plug a wired controller across your living room to play your PlayStation or Xbox is downright silly. And I think it's very likely that the idea that you would play a virtual reality experience, something where you're standing up and moving around your room with a big freaking heavy five meter cable coming out of your head will eventually be seen as downright silly. That's clearly, we're not going to get to a future where wireless systems are out there and people are still in a mass market sense of, you know, tens of or hundreds of millions of people are still lugging a cable around the room. I don't think Sony would have gone for a cable had they been able to yet ship a headset that is wireless at the same cost and convenience. We're just at the point where the technology is almost ready yet, but it's not quite there. The, the things that would be needed to deliver this at the same cost is not quite there. 
James O'Loughlin pointing out wired headphones are still valuable to people, wired keyboards are. Absolutely. But these aren't things that you move around the room with. Nobody walks around the room with a wired headset on. If you're in a use case where you need to kind of walk around your house, think of even phones. You know, telephones used to be cordless. You would have to, you know, there's, if you're too young to remember that, look at 80s movies where people have a telephone cord going across their entire house just to have a private conversation in their room. Now that would be seen as downright silly. Even phones are cordless. Tether, you know, Opsar says Tether only will die. Yes, I'm sure there will be a subgroup of enthusiasts who want the absolute maximum visual fidelity and can't stand the idea of even the tiniest signal degradation ever. Will that be a popular mass market product, though, is the real question. That was, you know, the original question here is, will PSVR 2 be the last popular mass market wired headset? And I think the answer Mm -hmm. to that is clearly probably yes. Robert Quinona's comment saying, I don't see why we can't have multiple headset types, like people who go to an office to work on a PC, then go home to work on a PC and sit on a couch with a laptop. I feel like VR can have multiples. I love that comment because it does point out that we can have subcategories within the VR product type. I think what we get confused by a lot in the market is the visions for AR glasses being the versions that you take out into the real world. And what we've talked about through the rest of this podcast is how hard it's going to be to pack all of that compute into that small form factor. And what we could have is multiple types of VR headsets that one you might be more willing to take outside for small trips or for a racquetball court where you've got a controlled space and you can play Space Pirate Train or Arena in a headset that's not going to be so darn hot after 20 minutes of use because more heat is is coming off of your face. That's a very different prospect from see-through optics that are wearable while you drive a car, right? And so we could have subcategories of VR headsets that are capable of doing some of these things that are exactly what Robert's talking about there. Yeah, I think, as you know, I've said before on this show, not just subcategories, I think there's going to be fundamentally different products. I think glasses and headsets are not the same thing and are going to be used in vastly different ways and have even vastly different software. As you say, one of them is the type of thing you want to be able to walk down a street with and use in your car, whereas the other kind of thing is something you're going to use in your room or out in your yard or in your garden at the very most. Daniel Lieber says he remembers when the TV remote had a wire. That's, that's oh exactly. And I'm sure a lot of people would have said it'll, you know, the TV remote wire will never die. One of the things about wireless that we didn't really dive into is we had like kind of a, I would call it a bad first experience with YGIG, right? Like we had the Vive wireless adapter where you had to operate on your PC in order to get the Vive wireless adapter up and running. You basically had to put a new card into the back of your PC and then mount the actual antenna for beaming all that data back and forth to your wireless adapter that's sitting on top of your head and producing a lot of heat at the exact spot on your body where most of your heat needs to dissipate from. And that's an overall thousands of dollars of experience in order to have wireless VR. And we've seen patents for ideas where if that broadcast device that you had to hook up to your PC, what if we just reduce that down to a simple USB connection? And then what if that antenna could actually point itself directly at your headset? 
how good does that wireless connection get and what might be possible? And we've seen like that interesting patent we found from Meta, right? Where the case that your headset goes into could actually become your broadcasting device for that connection, right, Heaney? Yeah, and that what was interesting about that patent application was that it was even saying that the computing hardware could be in there. So you know, there's all sorts of interesting ways that you can detach the computing hardware from the headset. And once you get to the point where wireless is not just solved, but low cost, because you know wireless will be solved before it's solved at low cost, then you can do very interesting things like putting it into the case or putting it into a little box that you just drop down. It's also the body tracker. To me, that seems like there's going to be a possibility to combine the body tracker and the computing hardware into the same console-like box. And But yeah, it needs to, for PC VR, as you say, it needs to be something simple that you plug it into a USB port or even at most you plug it in one cable to your HDMI port and one cable to your USB or display port and USB, and it just kind of works and you don't have to mount it on your wall. Beamforming is one of those things that's going to make that much more practical, as well as 60 gigahertz Wi-Fi getting cheaper and easier and better, which is, you know, as James O'Loughlin was pointing out earlier, YGIG2 is one of those technologies that's going to make that possible over time, you know, maybe we have to wait to YGIG three, but if we're, there's, it seems unlikely to me that we're not going to get to the point where this is something that's technically possible and practical in the near term, given how fast that these kind of wireless links are actually evolving. I think we'll get to one last comment. Geeko mentioning Wi-Fi seven will help with wireless streaming by allowing data to be sent across multiple bands, so five gigahertz and six gigahertz at the same time, and that will improve reliability a lot different generations of wireless infrastructure, Apple thought it was necessary to ship its own wireless router versus relying on the wireless router shipped by other people. And right now that's kind of non-existent, right? You trust your internet company in some instances to actually give you your router. I've been in conversation with Guy Godin myself to like, do I go out and spend the $600 I need to spend to get the absolute best experience out of virtual desktop within my house so that I've got like a mesh network with two different endpoints and I can use virtual desktop in any point in my house and have a really great Half-Life Alex experience. It's a significant investment to get that wireless hardware actually owned by the end user. But over the years, there have been compelling reasons to actually own that hardware. And I don't see those use cases spelled out for us just yet, right, Heaney? Well, yeah, VR could be one of them. You know, I, w- I would just say if you want to use virtual desktop, a mesh network isn't a good idea because they are designed to be more of a coverage thing than a direct speed. What you want to get is an access point, which is you can get for about $150, sometimes $100, a good Wi-Fi 6 access point that you connect to your router via Ethernet, and then it kind of brings the Wi-Fi to your headset. The difficulty there is, of course, the Ethernet aspect, and I would love to see mesh networks in the future get capable enough that they can handle that over a wireless backhaul. You know, the Google Nest series of products promises to do that, but it's it's still Wi-Fi 5, so it's not really there. There are higher-end, you know, Ubiquiti and, and other manufacturers that produce hardware like that. But I think this is really why it needs to be a dedicated adapter. It needs to be something that is just going from your PC to your headset or from your PlayStation 5 to your headset. And Guy Godin's right to point out that 6 gigahertz is 
also one of those interesting technologies coming soon because it means that there will be a dedicated band that isn't saturated by other current five gigahertz devices. And we know that, you know, the Vive Focus 3 is actually the first headset to get that six gigahertz support. And from what I've heard, it actually does significantly improve the quality of the wireless streaming there if you have a compatible router. But again, it comes back to what you were pointing out, Ian, which is Wi-Fi 6E, that six gigahertz routers and access points are incredibly expensive right now. But over time, the cost of these things is going to come down. Geek sort of giving us a timeline there that maybe end of next year is when we'll see Wi-Fi 7 devices and routers really hitting the market. And I'll be curious to see what those prices really land at and the use cases that are really going to be very useful there. Yeah, I think we're at a turning point where all of this is starting to come together. And that kind of comes back to what we were talking about of this being maybe potentially the last era of popular wired headsets because there are these all these interesting wireless technologies that are just around the corner or just in the process of being rolled out and once we get a few years down the line and they're proliferated out we can see wireless vr become a much more practical thing in people's lives Mm. i think of the sort of complete opposite end of what we're talking about here where you've got the air tag system that apple's rolling out where you're almost using the bluetooth communication system to tag the location of objects anonymously to the the devices surrounding them unless you opt in or have the account to manage that air tag you don't necessarily know that this air tag is floating around you where that's such an unexpected use of the wireless infrastructure there and we could be seeing higher bandwidth unexpected use cases in this next year, year and a half. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in this week.